If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to look with me in the book of Acts. We're going to look at chapter 1 this morning, verses 1 through 11. And just before I, I read those verses to you, just want to remind you that... Um, we are doing this survey of the Bible this year, walking through the four-part story of Scripture. And you might remember from last week, but I want to restate, there are many who think that the Old Testament ends uh, a story and then the New Testament starts a brand new story. And what we're trying to learn together is that we're just halfway done with the same story. And when we look at the book of Acts today, we are continuing the same story. And if you're wondering, well, why aren't you picking out something in the Gospels? It's because I want to spend a longer period of time in the Gospels than one sermon. And we've gone through the Gospel of John together and Mark together, but we haven't spent as much time in Acts. And so I want us to look at Acts in four or five weeks and look at the continuation of this story. And remember that in addition to these four parts, by the way, what are the four parts again? Creation, rebellion, Redemption, restoration. I love it. Great. We associated five statements with the, with the four-part story. And those five statements are attempts to uh, succinctly summarize what the followers of Jesus believe, what the Bible teaches, uh, doctrinal statements in very practical terms. And I want you to know that as we go over these five very quickly, that... Um, the New Testament continues to explore them such that they're more clearly seen and more vivid, more, uh, you see all the dimensions in much clearer ways than we did in the Old Testament. So like the first statement, um, God has always had a people. He's always been building his church. In the New Testament, we see that the church explodes and starts going all over the place. We're going to talk about that today. And even to the point where the New Testament calls us the Israel of God. Do you hear the continuation of the story? It's not Israel back then and us now and something in the future. It's we are the Israel of God. Second, evil is real, but it never gets the last word. Do you remember that? Well, in the gospel accounts, you actually get to read about the master plot of hell that gets defeated and transformed into redemption because our Jesus actually accomplished something. Which leads us to the third statement, grace. God initiates, pursues, and saves. Remember this? Well, guess what? In the second half of the story, we understand that grace isn't just the power of God, but it's a person. The grace of God appeared, and his name was Jesus. Fourth, he did it. We believe that Jesus actually accomplished something through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. And in the New Testament, we find as that story continues, and the fact that Jesus actually accomplished something is punctuated with some phrases that I hope you love. And if not, then I'd like to tell you, you need to love these. The fact that he did something is punctuated from the words that came from his mouth. It is finished. In the words of the angel, he's not here. He's risen. He actually did something and accomplished something. And finally, everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything in the Bible, everything in history, everything in your life, everything in the New Testament, everything that's going on in the world, everything is moving toward Jesus. And what we get to find in the New Testament is that he's returning again, 
He'll make all things new. And he will apply the work of what he's done as far as the curse is found. I don't know about you, but that gets me excited. It's the only message I know of that brings me concrete and eternal hope. So with that in mind, let's look at uh, Acts 1, 1 through 11 this morning. Listen to this. This, what I'm about to read to you, is the word of God. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself, to the, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come before you acknowledging that you are the ancient of days. All of time is in your hands. Holy Spirit, we've asked, you've heard us sing, would you breathe fresh on us? Lord, we've confessed before you, we've heard your assurance of pardon, we're reminded that we believe in you, the triune God, so we ask that you would take the truth that is here, and Holy Spirit, and breathing fresh on us, we're, we're, we're trying to say, would you bring fresh life, fresh understanding, uh, make us sense that, make us know the reality that truth is what makes us alive. So help us to understand these words and to remember the story, how we are a part of that story. Focus our minds, our hearts, our lives on the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that we would be changed and transformed. We would grow. We would be more like him. We pray this dependent on you, Holy Spirit, knowing that you love us, Heavenly Father. We pray these things through the blood of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. I want to introduce you to a young man that has terminal cancer. His name is Mitch. And as Mitch 
was enduring this diagnosis. It was Christmas time. He was in the hospital with his parents and his family. And as it was Christmas time, uh, Mitch started to notice that there was a conversation going on outside of his own room in the hospital. And he heard some other parents in the hallway talking about how they didn't know what they were gonna do for Christmas because they didn't have any resources by which to give any gift to their child who was in the hospital. Mitch heard this conversation and was talking to his own parents and he looked at his dad and he said, Dad, how much money do I have? And his dad said, Mitch, I I think you've got about $3,000. And he said, Dad, go get it. So his dad went to the bank and came back, got a bunch of envelopes, and Mitch and his dad divided up the money that he had into $100 bills, stuffed them into envelopes, and then Mitch said, Dad, will you take me around to all the rooms in the hospital that we can go, everywhere we can go? So his dad wheeled him around, and they gave out all the money that Mitch had. As far as it would go, he gave it away. He came back to his room, and he says, Dad, wasn't that awesome? Wasn't that amazing? And his dad said, yes, son, absolutely amazing. I want you to know the point that I want you to understand and get deep down into your hearts and the point that I want to get deep down into mine is this. The story continues and it grows in clarity. That story about Mitch, you might have thought from the outset, well, maybe that story was about this young boy's, you know, maybe his last words or something like that. That wasn't it. The story was growing and telling you the desire he had to be generous, right? The point of the New Testament is that the story continues and it grows in clarity. The point of Acts 1 that we're looking at this morning is the story continues and it grows in clarity. And as we're thinking about that idea, and I'm trying to show you that idea from the text, we're gonna have two stops this morning. The first stop is gonna be, the story continues, and the second stop is going to be, um, man, it just escaped my mind. Hold on, it'll come to me in a second. Might have to look at this. Oh yeah, 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 trust the storyteller. Maybe I'll remember it by the end too. The story continues and trust the storyteller. So let's jump in. The story continues, verses one through five. Look at this with me. Notice how Luke writes these words and immediately tells us that there is a volume one and a volume two. Look at verse one. He says, I'm writing these things, Theophilus, Because the former thing I wrote to you was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Do you see that? Luke is telling us from the beginning there is a volume one. And that volume one is the gospel of Luke. And he says in that volume I wrote to explain to you and to tell you what Jesus began to do and teach. And what he's implying or telling us is that this volume, Acts, is volume two. And in this volume, the book of Acts is about what Jesus continues to do. In other words, the gospel accounts are not about Jesus, and then when we come to Acts, they're about the church. 
What he's telling us is that the Gospels, and Luke in particular, are about Jesus and what he began to do and teach, and Acts is about what Jesus continues to do and what he continues to teach. And he does that through his Holy Spirit in the church. But Acts is about what Jesus continues to do. Jesus is the point of the Bible. Now, that might lead you to think this. Well, what in the world, especially when we read those verses together, um, what, was, what has Jesus been doing since the resurrection? What has he been doing? Good question. You notice that when you look at these first few verses that Luke gives us some uh, timing clues. You notice that there's 40 days that's mentioned. You see that in the text? And then at the end of verse 5, uh, he has this another little time stamp. Um, you're to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what has Jesus been doing since he rose from the dead? What has he been doing since he defeated death and walked out of the tomb? Well, Luke tells us, for 40 days, this is what Jesus has been doing. Before we delineate all of those, do you, do you, just, do you remember this part when Jesus talked to his disciples in the gospel accounts? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Do you remember that? Well, what we have in these first few verses, how Luke describes what Jesus has been doing for 40 days, is the content of Jesus telling his disciples, I will never leave you or forsake you. So this is what Luke fills that in with. This is what it means that Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He reminds his disciples of these things. He says, first of all, that he chose them. Look at verse two. I chose you. He's meeting with them and talking with them because he loves them and he chose them. They didn't appoint themselves to be the disciples. They didn't appoint themselves to be the apostles. Jesus chose them. Matter of fact, if you look in Mark chapter three, there are even this, there's even this glorious statement where Jesus says, I chose you just to be with you. Jesus is reminding his disciples of how much he loves them. He also says that he taught them the commands that come from the Holy Spirit. More than likely, that's referring to the, what we know as the Great Commission. That Jesus said, go as you are going. Make sure to live out a life that is pleasing to me. As you and go, as you go, engage people. As you are going, talk to people about who I am because I have all authority in heaven and on earth. It even says in these verses that Jesus told them about the kingdom of God, the very thing that he started his ministry with. In other words, these are summary little ideas that Luke is throwing in so we can understand what Jesus is doing from the time he got out of the tomb for 40 days. He appeared to them, that's what it says. He appeared to them sometimes um, as they were walking on the road to Emmaus. There were other times when he appeared to them and did uh, breakfast at the beach. Do you remember this in the Gospel of John? Like he appeared to them, he showed them he was real. He reminded them of what had happened because he was alive. He spoke to them of the kingdom of God. You wonder, what in the world is that? Well, you can read about it in Matthew 5 through 7, where Jesus is describing his kingdom. He's describing the nature of God's kingdom. Jesus, in engaging with his disciples, was trying to encourage them at the, in the most profound way 
He's trying to communicate to them that he loves them. He's even telling them that the Holy Spirit is going to come in a fresh way. And he's telling them that they need to go to Jerusalem and wait for him. Because the Holy Spirit's coming not many days from now is what the text says. So in thinking about this story continuing, I hope you understand that Luke is saying, uh, my job wasn't finished after I wrote the Gospel of Luke. And it was telling you what Jesus began to do. And I'm going to tell you in this volume what he's continuing to do. And here's what he was doing in the 40 days before he ascended back to heaven. He was telling his disciples how much he cared for them. And was going to provide for them. He was trying to encourage them to keep going. And I hope that that means something to you. Because as we'll see, we're not a lot different than the disciples. We hear things that Jesus says and then we forget. We hear Jesus say that he loves us and is going to be with us and then we doubt. So Jesus doing this in this 40 day period is, is profoundly important. Matter of fact, the most profound thing in these verses is this, the ascension. To see the story continuing, you got to look at Jesus being lifted up. Did you notice that in the text? The ascension? Now, you might be wondering, what in the world is this talking about? But well, we read that he was taken up. But I want you to understand something before we get into that about the ascension. The ascension is what connects the Gospels and the book of Acts. Guess how Luke's Gospel ends with Jesus ascending into heaven. Guess how Acts begins with Jesus ascending into heaven. The ascension is what connects the gospel accounts to the book of Acts. And if you wonder, what in the world does this mean? Great question. It means to go up, to move on, to move forward, to move up. Like um, to ascend to the throne. Not too long ago, somebody named uh, King Charles III ascended to the throne to take the position after Queen Elizabeth died, remember this? He ascended to the throne. What this is teaching us is that Jesus went up. He moved up. He ascended to the throne itself, which means much like King Charles, if we need to start with that, when he became king, it changed his relationship to everything and everyone. When Jesus ascended, it changed his relationship to everything and everyone. It meant that he went up to heaven and he was seated on the throne. Which meant that when Jesus ascended, we weren't going to get less of Jesus, we were going to get more. The ascension did not minimize our Savior. It actually magnified our Savior and who he is and what he has done. It means that he wasn't diminished in any way. It meant that he was maximized in every way. Because when Jesus became king, and when Jesus took his position as he should on the throne, it meant that he could take the significance of his perfect life and begin to work out the power of it, the glory of it, the benefits of it throughout the world. It meant that when he took the position as the king on the throne of the universe, 
that he had a different relationship to everything and everyone because of what he had accomplished on the cross and because he walked out of the tomb. It meant that there was no enemy, there was nothing that could stop him. It meant not even death itself could keep him from doing what he wanted. Does that encourage you? It means when he ascended to heaven, that we were gonna get more of Jesus, more power, more, significant of the cro- more significance from the cross, more significance from the resurrection, and it meant that that was going to start exploding everywhere. The story is continuing. That means that the disciples saw this, and as you might guess, they were confused. We'll get to that in just a moment. Look at verse 68. We'll get to that in a moment. But their confusion was nothing new. The disciples didn't understand when he was talking about going to the cross. You remember Peter saying, oh, oh, Jesus, you shouldn't do that. You don't need to do that. Confusion. You remember what happened when he was at the cross? The disciples, the disciples scattered. When Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead and then he rose from the dead, they were nervous. Some of them didn't even recognize who he was. So for them to be confused and misguided is nothing new. But what they were learning was the same thing. You gotta trust the storyteller. They were learning to trust the storyteller. And look at how confused they were specifically. Look at verse six through eight. Jesus tells them that he's going to ascend, and he did. And they say to him, uh, look at verse six through eight. Jesus, um, so is now the time when you're gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? In their minds, they were thinking to themselves, oh, this is the moment. This is the moment in which this piece of land is going to be restored to the nation of Israel. You do realize there are a lot of people that still think this. They thought in the first century. The disciples thought that. And they were really excited and really misguided. Really excited and really misguided. Um, actually reminded me of uh, the first day that my youngest daughter uh, had soccer practice. It was 7.30 a.m., and she was awake, and she had her shorts on, she had her jersey on, she had her cleats on, she had her shin guards on, and she was ready to go to practice at 7.30 in the morning, 10 and a half hours in advance. She still had school, she had other things to do, but let me tell you, that day she was ready to go. It is time, it is soccer time, let's go. She was really excited and a little bit misguided. We were gonna get there, but we got a while. The disciples hear about all this that Jesus is saying and they're super excited. Jesus, this is the moment. This is, this is when the, the, the nation of Israel, this is when we're going to get our land back. This is it. You're going to overthrow the government and give us back what we need. And you notice what Jesus says? Well, let me tell you this. The New Testament never mentions land connected with national Israel. Never mentioned. Matter of fact, the New Testament sees Jesus as the centerpiece of everything. So that in order to understand the Old Testament, you have to see Jesus there. 
It's why the New Testament presents Jesus as the second Adam, the last Adam, because he came to do what the first Adam didn't do. The New Testament understands that all the sacrifices that happened in the Old Testament were pointing to the ultimate sacrifice. And what's his name again? Jesus? The, the, the priesthood that existed in the Old Testament, it was actually pointing to the great priest that would come that would literally bring us into the Holy of Holies who didn't have to confess any sin of his own like the other priests, who was the perfect priest. The New Testament sees the kings in the Old Testament, David in particular, that Jesus is the greater David. He is the ultimate king who would come and rule his people. Or what we're learning, he would sit on the throne of the universe. The New Testament sees that Jesus came to do what Adam didn't, which means Jesus wasn't concerned about one little piece of land in the Middle East. He was concerned with God's plan from creation, the whole earth. Look at what Jesus says in verse eight. He says, friends, look, you're gonna be my witnesses and we're gonna go where? Jerusalem? to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They are thinking about what Jesus has done in this way. Jesus, we're so glad that you died and rose from the dead. We're so glad that you're with us. Thank you for encouraging us that you chose us. You're with us. You've taught us about the kingdom. You've told us that the Spirit is going to come. Thank you for all this because we are so glad that God is interested in accomplishing our plans. It's great what you've done, Jesus, because we need you to do something else for us. We need this piece of land. Jesus just is like, you guys don't even understand. I'm going global. That piece of land's too small. God created the world so that he could spread his glory everywhere. And what happens through the crucifixion and what happens as a result of the resurrection is that I'm on the throne the throne of the universe and I'm gonna cause the significance and the power and the glory of the cross and the power and the glory of the resurrection to go out throughout the world. It's gonna go everywhere. And friends, we've gone over and over and over this, but I hope it doesn't get old. We are the ends of the earth in Greenville, North Carolina. It started in Jerusalem in the first century and it's been spreading ever since. And there's some times where the church is strong in this part of the world and other times where it's strong in that part of the world, but God has been expanding his church, spreading his glory, just like Jesus said here. And his people have been a part of it for thousands of years. When Jenny and I were in when we were on our trip uh, in the UK um, in July, one of the places where we worshiped was a place in London called St. Helens Bishopgate. And I've known about that church for a long time, and I really wanted to go. And we worshiped there, and it, it was beautiful. It was just beautiful. Part of the building is over a 1,000 years old. 
You know what it's like to be in a building that's more than a thousand years old and hear the word of God read like it's been read for a thousand years? And we got to talk to the minister's wife and he was telling us that they have written documentation that there were followers of Jesus who've been worshiping in that spot since the fifth and sixth century. 1,500 years? Let me tell you, confessing the apostles' creed was even more powerful that day. Because I felt like I was saying it in a place where someone had been saying it for 1,500 years. Beloved, Jesus is concerned about the world. God is interested in spreading his glory throughout the world. And his church spreads not because of uh, slick business plans and new marketing techniques. It spreads because of its supernatural power. It spreads because the Holy Spirit takes what Jesus has accomplished and brings that into our lives. There is no gimmick. It's an announcement that there is peace with God because of what Jesus has done. It summons us to be witnesses, not weird soldiers that are interested in political or military power but who are interested in living out the truth. And when that is going on, the disciples are, are excited but um, misguided, and Jesus answers them in verse eight, then look at verse nine through 11. It's in that moment that Jesus begins to go up, and he's caught up into the glory cloud, and he goes out of their sight. And it would have been fun to be there, but I like reading about it because the disciples were just stuck there staring and, and angels appeared. You see that in the text? Look at 9 through 11. They're, they're, they're stuck staring at the sky and the angel's like, what are you looking at? He's gonna come back. He's gonna come back in the same way he came, which means he will come back and it will be personal but not private. He's gonna come back in glory And he's going to come back and everyone is going to know that Jesus is returning. He's going to come back in the same way that you saw him go. So you don't need to stare at the the sky. Live out what Jesus told you. So you can imagine why. Now, if you put yourself in the disciples' sandals, you might imagine, well, they would be thinking, well, what's next? And the answer would be, well, Jesus is going to return. Can you imagine him saying, yeah? Uh, well, what about till then? So he instructs them to go and wait in Jerusalem. Like Jesus told them, go and wait. And in waiting, and even after the Spirit comes, which we'll look at next week, you'll be my witnesses. You remember the story of Mitch at the beginning? He gave out $3,000, came back to his dad and said, wasn't that fun? That was amazing, Dad. Remember that? His dad said, yes, son. It was amazing. 
Mitch said, I can't wait to do it again next year, Dad. His dad said, that will be great, Mitch. I hope it happens. But you know as well as I do that if the doctors are right, you're probably not gonna be here next year. And Mitch paused and he looked at his dad and he said, then you do it. I tell you the story because there is no guilt and no shame, but just joyful responsibility. The kind of joyful responsibility that we all have to be faithful witnesses of Jesus. Not where we're trying to cram Jesus down people's throat, back them in the corner and make some weird decision, drop a gospel grenade on them, do a Jesus juke, not any of that. But where we are ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality in which we are living out that the story continues.